That's right. We are live with the start of the new year. Climate alarmism has been given center stage. 60 Minutes recently ran a segment about the looming population doomsday. The segment featuring noted doomsayer Paul Ehrlich promoted dire warnings like humanity is unsustainable and how we are in the midst of the sixth mass extinction. Also, a the UN convened a conference on biodiversity a couple of weeks ago with world leaders agreeing to a bunch of principles which had some major implications. We're going to be talking about this and more on episode 379 of the In the Tank podcast. All right. As always, I'm your host, Donald Kendall. Welcome to the In the Tank podcast. Joining me, I've got the full crew, the normal crew. It's been a few weeks. We're back from the holiday uh, holiday break here, so we got everyone in the studio. We've got Jim Lakely, VP of the Heartland Institute. How are you doing today, good sir? I'm doing great. I think this is about the 400th cloudy day in a row in Chicago, yes. and I'm starting to get a little bit nuts about it, <laughs> but I'll try to, um, actually, I'm just going to use that and just uh, continue to be in a bad mood for the whole podcast because that's kind of my brand. So it's yeah, that's out. right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's helping you. Uh, it's helping you out. Justin Haskins also joining us for the first time in about uh, two or three weeks, the director of the socialism research center. How are you doing today? Good, sir. Um, I'm doing good. It feels like uh, feels like it's been hours since the last time that we we were all together. Feels That's like right. It's been hours. You've so, been missing us. Been missing. May us, have been right? a couple weeks, but doesn't feel like it. <laughs> also joining us, Chris Talgo, editorial director at the Heartland Institute. How are you today, good sir? Doing good, and uh, like Jim, I am really missing the sun. But unfortunately, I don't think we're going to see much of it for the next couple of months here in Chicago. This is that time of the year, Donnie, as we described. Good old January, February, March, where it's just yeah, uh, nice and gray all day long. Yeah, yeah. Well, we only had one really bad cold spurt. So, uh, so, far, so far, so good. Yeah. So far, so good. We'll see what January and February brings. Audio only listeners who are probably catching the show on a Friday or Saturday, you can join us a day earlier on Thursdays. Catch the show live at noon central time. If you watch us on YouTube, which is Stopping Socialism TV, or on our Facebook or Twitter accounts, and we're also on Rumble. So join us. Join us live. Throw your comments and questions in the uh, in the chat there, and maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. And uh, also, for all those that are wondering, we still have tickets available for our upcoming 15th International Conference on Climate Change taking place February 23rd through the 25th in Orlando, Florida. Uh, you can find the ticket information and anything else that you're looking for by going to heartland.org and clicking on the featured tab for the for the uh, ICCC, or you can go to climateconference.heartland.org for more information. Jim, seems like every week you got an update about what's happening and new speakers and all of that. You got anything else to uh, to add to this? Uh, I have no new speakers to announce uh, just yet. Uh, got a you know, let's just say we got some pretty big uh, names. Uh, on the hook. So uh, we just got to reel them in. Uh, we've also actually redesigned. If you go to heartland.org uh, 
today is actually the official first 24 hours of a brand new, newly designed website at heartland.org. Uh, so I do encourage all the listeners to check it out because you can find our climate conference information there. But I think you'll also find it a lot easier to find to find our videos, to find our podcasts, and to find all the latest stuff that the Heartland Institute is doing. We're, we're really excited about the relaunch of the website. So uh, check it out. Sweet deal. We have a website now. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. That's the that website. The website <laughs> get, is get your sweet. dial up. Get your yeah, no, it is. <laughs> it is. It's it's pretty sweet. Get Donnie, your AOL CD just out. Trash. Yeah, Donnie just trashes everything. So don't don't listen to No, but you should have seen our website when Justin and I first started here. <laughs> Jim can yeah. attest to that. It oh, was yeah. it was straight yeah. out of like the nineties, but uh but no, we are we are we are definitely making progress there. It's looking great, but I'm sure there's some bugs. So look through the website, see if uh, see if there's anything that seems amiss. Yeah, seems go there and try, try to break it and then let us know what happened. That <laughs> actually helps us out. Uh, so we have a lot to talk about. I do want to get into it. But before we get into our main topics, it seems like there's been a lot of headlines going around about uh, this guy named Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans trying to pick a leader of the House of Representatives. I, I don't know. Uh, I said on this podcast numerous times, I don't like politics. I'd rather talk about policy. So somebody else is going to have to fill me in on what's going on here. And if it's an important topic, Chris, do you want to give us a rundown of what's going on here? Yeah. You know, I've got a lot of thoughts about this. You know, one on one hand, I think to myself, you know what, the Republican party needs to just coalesce around Kevin McCarthy and just start the governing process because they are just wasting days. And the, uh, the uh, left and the media is having a field day with this. But then there's the other side of it where I think to myself, you know what, the speakership has been uh, vastly empowered uh, in the, in recent decades. And what the 20 so-called rebels are trying to do is they are trying to get uh, get the house, you know, back into functional order. What they're trying to do is they're trying to take some of the power from the speakership and they are trying to put it back into the members. And I, I, I like that. So, you know, on one hand, I'm like rooting for them, but then on the other hand, I can see where people are starting to get frustrated because this is just playing into the Democrats hands. But there also is a very big difference between the left and the right. The left, they do seem to walk in lockstep many times when it comes to this kind of stuff. The right seems to be much more independent minded. So this is kind of par for the course. Um, I don't know how it's going to play out, but I'm glad maybe this is the beginning of, you know, uh, some much needed reform on Capitol Hill. Yeah, Jim, I mean, I saw one comment saying that the seventh vote has failed to uh, to make this guy leader of the House. Um, is this un is this unprecedented? Is this something that happens regularly? I really don't pay attention to this stuff. Uh, it's certainly very unusual. Uh, I don't know the number of votes that you've had failed votes you've had to to appoint a, or to elect, I should say, as Speaker of the House of Representatives. Um, I'm sure we're probably getting pretty close to it. It's certainly not uh, certainly unprecedented in what you would call modern times. Like, look, I I uh, I covered Capitol Hill for several years. Um, I was in the you know. I was in Washington, D.C., living and working there as a journalist, and I covered I covered all this stuff. I was a political reporter. Uh, our director of government relations, uh, Cameron Schulte, who was on this podcast once in a while, uh, came into my office and was like, yeah, what do you think about this Kevin McCarthy stuff? And I'm like, I don't care. I mean, <laughs> I, I mean and, and this and, and actually we had the discussion. It's like if you're really into the politics stuff, if you're like in the Washington swamp, you, you kind of have to go to a deprogramming uh, <laughs> seminar or something to get your head out of that stuff that you think really matters. And it really doesn't. I mean, this Republican Party at the end of 2022 gave away all leverage that it had after the midterm elections. 
and gave the Biden administration and the and the leftist Democrats everything they wanted in a in a almost two trillion dollar omnibus spending package that nobody read. And now I'm supposed to care about what guy that the the the, the House Republicans elect to be their leader. I'm sorry, I can't get I can't get excited about that because it's never going to matter. Because you know maybe it would matter if if the only thing that matters actually is if. Kevin McCarthy is actually never going to be Speaker of the House. If they elect a genuine conservative or somebody from the, the Freedom Caucus, like a um, like Jim Jordan or somebody like that, uh, that, then I might get a little bit excited. But we all know what's going to happen here. The extreme likelihood is that after more days on, you know, of dragging this out and embarrassing Kevin McCarthy, he will still be Speaker of the House. And the, you know, Smaller government, less spending, conservative agenda uh, will be abandoned, and they will just the Republicans will just continue to to lie down and uh, and let this country be spent into oblivion. So you know, again, I'm in a really good mood. So that's about as good a that's about as good a spin as I could put on it right now. I think Republicans are missing the obvious choice here. Yeah, Kevin McCarthy, maybe some other option. <laughs> this is the guy we need here. The Q and the Q and Shaman. I mean, he just he just arrived a couple of years early. That that's all that the problem is. So I think we need a new vote. <laughs> this is the guy that we need. He Justin, knows his way around the. He, sorry, he Donnie, but I, <laughs> but I think he's in prison. Oh dang it! Well, whatever. Yeah. Well, he knows uh, his Justin, way around the Capitol, so that's a good qualification already. Exactly right. Right, right. <laughs> uh, Justin. I'll give you final words on this uh, before sure. we move on to our main topic. Okay, so let, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little. It's a little story time here. I promise it won't be a, a long story by my standards. Um, basically, uh, my I my experience in policy and politics is like 98, 9% of it comes from working at the Heartland Institute and doing work affiliated with that. But before, it's a little Justin Haskins trivia, before I worked at the Heartland Institute, I was very, very briefly the field director for the Rhode Island Republican Party. Yes, that's right. The Rhode Island Republican Party, one of the most pointless parties in America. Yeah. So He was a, he was a field director... He was a field director. That just means he stood in a field. <laughs> That's all that means. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. They don't really have fields in, in Rhode Island. Maybe abandoned parking lots or something would have been a better fit. So I'm in Rhode Island. I'm the field director. And there was, incredibly, a scandal in Rhode Island politics, which is something that happens all the time. It's very similar to Illinois, these other corrupt places full of of uh, Democrat politicians. And when they had, I can't remember if the existing speaker was thrown out or resigned in shame or was brought out in handcuffs. It was something like that though. <laughs> mm -hmm. And <laughs> happens all the time there. So it's really not that strange, but what, what ended up occurring is there was a fight within the democratic party of Rhode Island, which is the only party that matters there over who the speaker would be. And, um, they were, it was between the really far left people and the more sort of establishment types. And the Republican Party, for the first time in forever, actually mattered in the state legislature because mm. the they they were their plan was there's only like six Republicans or something, if I remember right, at that time, out of like a hundred people in the legislature. But the six votes, if they vote as a block, could push it one way or the other, right? right. And, and so even though they were only six out of a hundred, they had the ability to sort of shape who the speaker would be. So essentially what they did was the goal was to try to, you know, get as much as they could out of this sort of cut a deal with mm. both sides, see who would give them the best deal. And that's where they were going to go. 
And I think that they had it all lined up. And then at the last minute, Republicans do what Republicans do. They completely screwed it up. They, the, the coalition of six people broke down and they divided their vote and they became pointless again, pretty much overnight, which is how this always goes with Republicans. But the moral of the story is this, a very small group of people within the legislature, when you have these kinds of fights for leadership uh, occur, can actually, they actually do have some leverage. Democrats were actually coming to Republicans, a pointless group of people in Rhode Island, and begging them for support and cutting deals with them, something they would normally never do, but they were doing it because they needed the votes in order to get the leadership. So a minority of people in these kinds of interpolitics, interlegislative sort of fights, it can actually do something. So the hardcore conservatives holding out right now in the Republican Party in the House, they're not going to get a real conservative as speaker. There's there's just no chance of that happening. They don't have the votes. But what they can do is embarrass Kevin McCarthy enough, and he will be the speaker. I mean, it's going to happen. They can embarrass him enough and put enough public pressure on him to get something out of the deal. And that's really all that they're looking for. They're just looking to shame him publicly, make him look like he has no control over his party, make him look bad, and eventually he'll cave, this is the idea, and give them something in return. Leadership positions, rule changes in how things work in the House, taking power away from the Speaker. Nancy Pelosi had done all kinds of things to expand the power of the Speaker of the House while she Mm. was uh, ruling over it um, as its overlord. And so I, I think there is something to be said. I think there is value in that. And I think that it does make sense and it makes Republicans look bad, but uh, temporarily, but that's the whole point. That's how you actually get something out of the deal. You've got to make the leadership look bad in order to get something out of it. If you just go along with whatever they want, you're not going to get anything from them. So conservatives are trying to cut a deal in order to get something. That's what it's all political theater. It will be over soon. uh, And, and then everyone will forget about it. The election yeah, cycle, yeah, I mean, the, the, the wheels of time keep turning, uh, politics moves on to some other thing, everyone will forget, and none of this will matter. <laughs> but Kevin McCarthy, but it will matter in the sense that if they can get a rule change or something in place, sure. it might, in a very, very, very small way, it might make right. a positive impact. So it's worth doing. It's not totally pointless, but it's All mostly right, well- pointless. Well, we'll see what happens with that. But I just uh, I just saw on Twitter that Matt Gates stood up and voted for Donald Trump as Speaker of the House. So oh that's that's uh, it's getting going to be Good. quite a so, now great. I might start getting interested. That's uh, that's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, we're just a couple steps away from the QAnon shaman guy. That's yeah. it. So Why not? We got yeah, to do that. All right. So I was uh, looking at a bunch of potential things that we could talk about on this uh, episode of the podcast, and there was a lot. There was a lot we could talk about. Uh, there is several more rounds of the Twitter files that came out, some elaborating on the involvement of the government and the censorship of Twitter. We might cover that in a future episode, but in the meantime, our very own Jack McFerrin has been updating a rundown of these files and an article on StoppingSocialism.com. So if you're very interested in it, you can go there and kind of get the brief rundown. There's several stories revolving around COVID. Trending on Twitter this morning was new COVID, talking about Yet another strain that's probably even more transmissible and less deadly. I don't know. I didn't look into it, but we could have talked about that. Or we could have talked about Jim's favorite movie, Avatar 2, reaching (laughs) $1.5 billion, dethroning Top Gun for the the number one uh, movie of 2022. But there is one story that digs right into my core. 
And that is the 60 minutes segment that has been going around. So on Sunday, 60 Minutes ran a segment featuring the infamous doomsayer, Paul Ehrlich, talking about the coming sixth mass extinction for life on Earth. Paul Ehrlich, you might know for his famous book in 1968 titled The Population Bomb, where he predicted that the world was going to soon run out of food and lead to the deaths of hundreds of millions of people in the 70s and 80s, which I'm not sure if that happened. Pretty sure it didn't. Um, were and, any of us uh, alive in 1968, by the way? Jim, were you alive in 1968? I was not alive in 1968. Okay, so none of us were alive <laughs> well, I was born when in that famous book came out. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I was actually, the most surprising thing out of the 60 Minutes clip uh, segment was the fact that Paul Ehrlich is still alive. I, yeah. I truly yes. did not know Amen, that. Amen, brother. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, 90 so years I, old. So I have a, a, a you know, I, I'm I'm fearful that uh, if we played the clips from the 60 Minutes that we're going to get some copyright strike. Maybe we'll play some clips from it. But in case we have to, like, edit those out, if we do play clips, I'm just going to give a very brief rundown of, of how this 60 Minute thing's played out. So it starts off with the the heartfelt story of a, of a fisherman not being able to fish the waters that his families have fished for generations and generations and all of that. And, and how this uh, reduction in biodiversity is, is changing his way of life for his family and his community and all. It of that. always starts that way. Yes, of course. The gut wrenching story. Yeah. They, this, a, a lot of this was like pure, like uh, media one Oh one type stuff. So then it goes to Paul Ehrlich who says too many people, too much consumption and growth mania. And then the narrator of it, whoever the uh, the journalist for this whole thing was, says <laughs> by the Pelly. age of by the age of ninety, Scott Pelly says, uh, biologist Paul Ehrlich may have lived long enough to see some of his dire prophecies come true, <laughs> which is hilarious to me because the only times we've ever talked about him is when his prophecies fall on their face, which is ninety eight point five percent of the time. But sure, maybe he got it right one point two percent of the time. Uh, so that goes back to Paul Ehrlich saying, no, humanity is not sustainable. To maintain our lifestyle, yours and mine, basically for the entire planet, you'll need five or more Earths. Uh, five more Earths. Uh, not clear where they're going to come from, he jokes. So then uh, the the Scott Pelly says, just in terms of resources that would be required. And then uh, Paul Ehrlich says, resources that would be required. The systems that support our lives, which, of course, are the biodiversity that we are wiping out. Humanity is very busily sitting on a limb uh, that we are sawing off. So then it talks about his book, The Population Bomb, and how he was wrong about that. But how he's been right about a whole bunch of other stuff, supposedly. <laughs> it says the, the rate of extinction is extraordinarily high now and getting higher all the time. This is what Paul Ehrlich says. So then it goes to a couple of other guys talking about how we're facing the sixth great extinction, how 75% of everything is gone in terms of uh, land and, and water. We're, we're inhabiting all of this stuff and, and uh, birds that were once plentiful are gone, all of these different things. It talks about potential solutions before talking a little bit about the UN Biodiversity Conference, which we're going to get into later. And then back to Paul Ehrlich who's asked about the lack of political willpower to act on these dire predictions. And he says, I know there is no political will to do any of the things that I'm concerned <laughs> with, which is exactly why I and the vast majority of colleagues uh, think that we've had it, that in the next few decades will be the end of the kind of civilization that we're used to. So that's gen that's the meat of it. There's a, a few more aspects of it that I kind of uh, you know left out of my explanation for this. 
But I want to go to Jim first of what your initial reactions were to this 60 minute segment. Well, uh, I guess we don't have to play the clips now because you've, you've pretty much <laughs> the clips I prepared because you pretty much read it all the way out. So I guess we won't <laughs> have to worry about getting a, a, a copyright strike for that. But, uh, you know, we laugh at this um, because it's absurd and it's funny. We should laugh. Uh, and and mockery is a is a great counter to uh, this sort of thing, because Paul Ehrlich has been wrong, um, not, you know, He's been wrong about, I would just say, it's safe to say you'd easily round up to 100% of the time he's been wrong. Uh, I mean, you know, he said, uh, you know, he said in 19, where was it? 1970. So that's the year I was born. Um, and so he said that uh, most of the people who are going to die in the greatest cataclysm in history of man have already been born. So, uh, all right, I'm 52 years old. I guess uh, uh, I'm not long for this earth. Um, he, 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 he said that we were going to have food shortages and that basically humanity would depopulate itself mm-hmm. because we would run out of food. And when watching this segment on 60 Minutes, Scott Pelley actually mentions that, you know, well, you know, a lot of the predictions in uh, Paul Ehrlich's Population Bomb book did not come true, especially on agriculture. But he called it, but like the green revolution in agriculture has made it so that we can feed ourselves. But he just breezed right by that mm-hmm. as right. if that was just no big deal. It's like, dude. Paul Ehrlich said we were all going to starve to death. He said that there was no way we'd be able to grow enough food to keep ourselves alive and that we wouldn't be able to raise um, you know, farm animals. We would starve to death. Billions of people would just wither away and die. That's what he said. And he said that 50 years ago. And you put him on the, the, the number one news television news program in America, the legacy, probably the most respected. We don't respect it because, you know. It's 60 Minutes, and it's the leftist corrupt media. But millions of people watch and trust 60 Minutes. Um, I, don't, I was going to look it up, and I forgot. But I would, I would guarantee you at least four or five, maybe 10 million people watched 60 Minutes this Sunday. Because it's just part of you know the natural uh, Sunday evening for millions and millions of Americans, especially older ones. Yeah, the, but the what clip's is, got like a million views on YouTube alone. So. Yeah, alone, in just a couple of days. So yes, millions and millions of people have listened to this. And we think it's absurd, and we laugh. But a lot of people don't. And we have we have raised two at least two generations of children like who are like Greta Thunberg, who are terrified that uh, humanity is going to go extinct, that we are actually destroying the planet and the ability of of plants and animals to exist on this planet. And that Earth is just going to slough off humanity because we are exploiting all of these resources. We were supposed to have peak oil in the 1970s. We now have more oil and natural gas than we know what to do with. We literally just the United States probably have 500 years of natural gas under our feet right now. And all we have to do is go get it. But this sort of alarmism, this, 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 this mania, it seeps into the culture and it actually drives policy. We are, in, we are embarking on a, on a suicide mission when it comes to getting rid of fossil fuels, to get to net zero. And the underpinning of all of it is this doomsday stuff that if we don't act now, we are all doomed. It's a lie. And for Scott Pelley to, you know, of all people, of all people, Paul Ehrlich, the guy who has been wrong about every prediction for 50 years, and you put him on your program and present him to the American people, and you don't utter a syllable, a syllable of of pushback on his predictions, either in the past or now. And don't even think about putting somebody on there who actually on the air, on camera, who would counter him 
you, you don't even have to bring up his history, but just talk about how, yes, our agriculture uh, technology keeps advancing. We have these smarts. We, we, we are able to sustain. Our population is 8 billion people. It was 3.5 billion when Paul Ehrlich said we were all going to die, and that was too many. It's right. insane. But the, 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 the thing that's really frustrating is that there are a lot of people who listen to that, who trust 60 Minutes, and who think that, yeah, Paul Ehrlich is right. Why else would they have him on 60 Minutes if he wasn't right? That's the real tragedy. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you said that because, yeah, like they could have easily had somebody offering the counterpoint to this that was just like, yeah, you know, there's a lot of doomsayers and all of this. They literally got like the biggest doomsayer of all time and then had nobody to counter them. And just a, a, a couple of more things, because Justin and I have done plenty of work on Paul Ehrlich in the past. Uh, he's got a bunch of crazy quotes, one of them from 19... 1967, Ehrlich heralded that we are the, the time of famines is upon us. In 1969, Ehrlich made one of the weirdest predictions that I've ever heard, saying, quote, unless we are extremely lucky, everyone will disappear in a cloud of blue steam pollution <laughs> in 20 years, which I don't think that happened. And my favorite quote from Ehrlich comes from 1989, after a story came out suggesting that scientists might have figured out the key to cold fusion and unleashing the, uh, the potential for limitless free, carbon-free energy, all of this stuff. Instead of celebrating this, Paul Ehrlich said that giving society cheap, abundant energy would be the equivalent of giving an idiot child a machine gun. So for Paul Ehrlich, it's not about climate change. It's not about reducing CO2 emissions or anything like that. It's very purely a population thing. Uh, Chris, I'm going to throw it to you. Your, your thoughts after watching this 60-minute segment. So first of all, I want to say uh, in the early 2000s, I was an avid viewer of 60 Minutes because they actually did really good investigative reporting. Um, you know, they they always had both sides of the argument. And this one, they had Paul Ehrlich, who was followed by his Stanford colleague and a bunch of other uh, people who are just hyping the same thing. So they have just lost all credibility. They do not present both sides of the issues. They are just an echo chamber. So just want to get that out of the way. I've lost all respect for 60 minutes. Um, and then he, on this one, uh, you know, this was really about the sixth mass extinction event. And that's what they were really hyping on this thing. And what they were saying is, is that, uh, and, and we're going to get to this later, so I don't want to go too much into it, that uh, a lack of biodiversity is creating a, a situation in which we are going to see a mass uh, extinction event, unlike that seen since when the dinosaurs died 66 million years ago. Every single other mass uh, extinction event in history has been uh, from volcanoes or from you know, uh, asteroids or th those kind of things. They've been, you know, natural. They're they're claiming that this is all man-made, and of course they're saying that uh, green uh, uh, renewable energies is going to be the solution to all this. But Donnie, like you said, they are also saying that we're there are just too many people on this earth, so they are definitely uh, coming into this with a uh, anti-human perspective, and I think that that really does need to be. Uh, you know, said, and I think that needs to be said clearly, they are anti-human. They are unwilling to accept the fact that the more humans we have, the more innovation we have, the more ideas we have, the more cooperation we have, the more collaboration we have, the more humans we have in general, the better things are. And if, if anything, we're actually in a, uh, a population uh, decline. The birth rate in uh, most Western countries is falling. So if anything, we should be sounding the alarm for the exact opposite problem. But that would not go with what Paul Ehrlich and uh, people in his ilk want, which is less humanity. For yeah, when I, first, 
when I first started seeing this uh, this going around, I think I first saw people talking about the sixty minutes thing on Twitter, and it was and it was being talked about as like this climate change alarmism. And I, I think I introduced this at the top of the podcast as like you know climate change alarmism taking center stage. But when you get like five minutes into this video, it becomes very clear that this was not about climate change. I think they referenced climate change once during this yeah. whole 15 minute segment. Yeah. This whole thing, and this is my biggest takeaway from the 60 minutes uh, segment, is that it was all population control rhetoric. That's what it was from, mm-hmm. from beginning to end. Even if we were to you know, have some breakthrough and all the free energy and all of this stuff, that's still not going to stop us from expanding and building more houses and, and consuming more food and doing all of these different things. So the idea of replacing you know, uh, reliable fossil fuels with unreliable wind and solar, it's going to do nothing to solve the problems that are being pointed out in the 60 minutes, uh, the 60 minutes segment. So Justin... I mean, do you concur with that or uh, you think this is just part and parcel of climate change? Yeah, no, I I think that's I think that's the most interesting thing. I mean, uh, when you think about the the thing that I like about Paul Ehrlich, I always find myself in this situation where I'm liking all these crazy people. The thing (laughs) I like about these crazy people on the left is that they are at least they are logically consistent with what they you know they take their their fundamental beliefs and then they uh, logically they move forward with policy that they think will accomplish their goals that are related to their fundamental beliefs okay a lot of people on the left don't do that like that that's the whole that's one of the biggest issues with sort of renewable energy as we understand it so-called renewable energy windmills and solar panels and all this stuff is that it actually won't do the things that they claim that it will do So even if you believe that there is a crisis, that wouldn't solve the crisis. Hmm. So the thing that I like about Paul Ehrlich and Michael Moore, and there's other people that are kind of in this camp, I think it's actually growing in recent years, is they're at least intellectually, they're honest, they're, they're crazy, but they're honest, and they are logically consistent. And so that really is the most, one of the most important parts of all of this is if you actually believe in this sort of mass extinction thing, which people on the left are talking about all the time, then yeah, you need fewer people. That's what you need. You need fewer people that it's Mm -hmm. not about more solar panels. That's not going to solve the problem. You need fewer people. And in fact, um, you know, and we, we've been talking about this for many years, Donnie, right? The worst thing that can happen from Paul Ehrlich's perspective is that we get, we find some sort of, uh, golden, Yeah, yeah, we find some perfect <laughs> source of energy. We find a perfect source of energy that that creates no problems at all and powers everything uh, efficiently and affordably. And every that's the worst thing that could happen from these people's perspective because that means unlimited economic growth. That means more human expansion. That means more people building more cities and all this. And they will never. That's not something that they want. That's something they, they very, uh, Paul Ehrlich is very clear. He does not want that. See, so there's that part of it, I think is, is so important for people to understand that fundamentally the people, how you can tell when you're, when you're talking about people who are alarmists, you can tell the true believers from the hucksters by looking at how radical their solutions are for the radical problem that they say is, is plaguing the world if you're if they're saying we're all gonna die but their solution is more solar panels that 
they're not real. They don't real or they or they don't understand at all what they're talking about. But it, the people who take it seriously will say things like this. And that's what's so scary is that at some point in time, does that transition happen where it's like, you know what? Actually, we just need fewer people. The windmills and solar panels, that didn't do the job. We need fewer people. And uh, I, I fear that that is the direction that we're headed in because we yeah. see this in Paul Ehrlich and people like that. And we've seen it for decades now. Yeah, and, uh, and, and Don, well, Donnie, that that trend has also continued with uh, AOC and Bernie, who are saying, "Oh, climate change is going to be such a disaster. In twelve years, we're all going to die. Don't have children." This is becoming a mainstream talking point on on the far left, and it's really sick. It's anti-human. It's 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 disgusting. Yeah, oh, and yeah. Ju and just and just really real quick about about that because it, was, it struck me the beginning of the story is because this is how they always do it, right? It's it's we got to draw people in with some heartbreaking story of somebody suffering and if only we were just doing whatever this expert that we're about to talk to suggests, then this person that we showed you at the beginning of this, he may not be suffering, but it's like the real radical environmentalist like Paul Ehrlich, yeah, that guy wouldn't on the boat, he wouldn't be suffering because he wouldn't exist. He mm -hmm. he wouldn't he wouldn't be alive. He wouldn't be here. He wouldn't have been born. That's what Paul Ehrlich wanted. So like the, the, the anti-humanist aspect of the radical environmentalism, I'm, we're not talking about your run-of-the-mill person who just wants to have, you know, some conservation efforts and likes to save pandas and whales and whatever. We're not talking about those people. We're talking about the real hardcore policy people, the people at the NRDC and places like that, Paul Ehrlich's of the world, Michael Moore. These people understand that in order to accomplish their goals, their goals are radical. In order to accomplish them, you need less people. And, mm -hmm. and in order to have less people, you can you can persuade them, you can try to convince them, incentivize them, coerce them, propaganda might work, I don't know. But at some point, if people are still having more people, we got to do something about that. And that's th that kind of stuff is so terrifying, but they're very honest about it. And if you take them seriously, as we do, you know, well, it, it's a scary road that we're headed down. You know, th this stuff is terrifying. And if you were to just show somebody a, this this clip, the 60 minutes clip uh, with no other context and, you know, we're pretty well versed in the in the uh, counter arguments to all of this stuff. I think it would scare the hell out of them. Right. So yeah. I've got uh, I've got a couple of pieces. I mean, it, like I said, we know a, a lot of the counter arguments. There's a ton of this, especially in like our field of, of things. Um, there was a comment just up here by this. Peter Meister, who actually got me involved in the Heartland Institute like 10 years ago, talking about a book published by Cato, talking about things are uh, getting better all the time. Cato also, I think it's Cato, also has a website called Human Progress that just talks about all the uh, actual progress and the reduction of like uh, uh, avoidable deaths that have been made throughout history or whatever, especially recent years. And then there's this article from Reason that I'll have in the show notes. Uh, that the the basic concept of this article, uh, the main driving point of this article is don't jump off the ledge. And uh, it talks about how the how deaths from famines and lack of food is actually dropped over the time span of Ehrlich's predictions. It talks about how there is more agricultural land now than ever before and how the macro trends of the world population have it natural naturally plateauing in like 2050 with increasing numbers of people living in more densely populated cities, which would allow more natural areas to flourish, all without having to do any government force or anything like that. 
It also references something that Justin and I have researched over the past, uh, and that's the fact that resource consumption is actually leveled off in the past 40 years due to drives in efficiencies, telecommunications, digital revolution. I mean, we're not cutting down as many trees because everyone sends emails instead of memos, right? And uh, we've actually seen a leveling out of the use of aluminum, nickel, copper, steel, and gold, despite the fact that populations continue to grow. And these are findings of the U.S. Geological Survey, and they run completely counter to the assertions by these people like Paul Ehrlich. So there's plenty of evidence out there. It's not just like, oh, yeah, these people are, are pointing out something and their solutions are crazy. No, they're pointing out something that is is very uh, open to be countered with 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 different facts and all of that stuff. And again, to, to reiterate a point that Jim made earlier, 60 Minutes decided not to put any of that in there to counter the, the claims by Paul Ehrlich, who is famous for being wrong in his predictions. Yeah. Uh, Jim, I'll throw it back to you if you have any comments on any of that. Well, you know, 60 Minutes could have at least put somebody on there who wasn't so pessimistic, who would say that, you know, well, hey, we went from 3.5 billion people in 1970 to 8 billion people. And, uh, you know, there hasn't been mass starvation. I mean, uh, Paul Ehrlich uh, predicted uh, in 1971, he gave a speech that this must have gone over great in the United Kingdom, where he said, by the year 2000, the United Kingdom will simply be a small group of impoverished islands inhabited by some 70 million hungry people. If I were a gambler, I would take even money that England will not even exist in the year 2000. That, that's what he had said in 1971. Uh Dang it. Unfortunately, he was wrong on that one. He was wrong on I'm that one. I'm kidding, English fans. I'm joking. <laughs> That's right. In April 1970, he said that uh, you know people are going to be starving because we won't be able to make enough food. And he said the death rate will increase until at least 100 to 200 million people per year will be starving to death during the next 10 years. So, so you know, before 1980, he predicted that 100 to 200 million human beings would starve to death every year. Uh and so for 60 minutes, not even to put anybody on, I mean, it, Scott Pelley himself should have been throwing this stuff in his face and said, you know, you were so spectacularly wrong, not just a little wrong, spectacularly wrong. He should have, he should have, he could have at least a, an honest journalist would do that. But Scott Pelley in 60 minutes, Scott Pelley is not an honest journalist. 60 minutes is not an honest journalist program. It's a propaganda outfit. And the propaganda they are pushing is this anti-human evil. It's evil. It's an evil anti-human uh, agenda that is being pushed here because there was because there's no pushback to it. And it's it's to condition us to look at each other, our fellow human beings, as a plague. It's kind of like what happened with COVID. We, we, we were conditioned by our governments and by our culture and by our, our news programs to look at each other, not as human beings with with you know wants and desires and the ability to love and to add a soul. But to look at each other, human being, as a as a walking a vestige of of you know of pus and disease, and this is we this is more of that kind of conditioning, because you know if we have too many people, if it's going to cause ecological collapse, if biodiversity is um, is going to collapse here because there's too many humans on it, you know what is the solution to that? The solution is obviously, and what they say is fewer people, and so well, you are conditioned now to look at your fellow human being as somebody who shouldn't be there. They shouldn't even be alive. It is devaluing the value of a human being. That's ultimately what this is really about. And that's what, you know, kind of gets you kind of scared about it because what, it, what happens after that? You know, if we have too many people on earth and we're all going to die, you know, we need to do something about that. And again, somebody had mentioned in the comments that um, they have two millennial uh, grandchildren who are not going to have very many kids. They're just going to have one. 
Um, and Elon Musk has even talked about our problem right now is not too many people is that we're not repopulating fast enough that, you know, that's what's really going to cause cause societal collapse. But it's just this anti-human message that is just so evil. And it's just yeah, being pushed with no pushback. There's nobody standing up for the sanctity, frankly, of life and the value of human beings. Yeah, I got I got more on that uh, that I want to get to after we talk about this U.N biodiversity conference but uh, uh chris you were you were sending me some articles that were uh kind of rebuttals to these assertions that were being made in the 60 minutes segment uh one of them by one of my favorite people michael schellenberger talking about no we are not about to go off a cliff when it comes to all of this is there any real quick facts that you want to throw out or anything before we get to this un biodiversity conference yeah, so Paul Ehrlich's comment about we're going to need five more Earths to sustain the current population was completely debunked by Schellenberger uh, 10 years ago. And you can go and uh, look that up on his Substack. But I do have a real quick. Um, uh, I can't find it. Oh, here we go. No, sorry, sorry, sorry. Here you we go. It. So, OK, um, <clears throat> they, you know, they're talking about this biodiversity crisis and they're talking about the fact that human beings are basically causing the uh, end of uh, all these species. That is completely not true. Here, here we go from environmental progress. The IUCN has estimated that 0.8% of the 112,432 plant, animal, and insect species within its data have gone extinct since 1500. Hmm. Uh, furthermore, uh, that's a rate of fewer than two species lost every year for an annual extinction rate of 0.001%. Many environmentalists and, and conservationists claim that fossil fuels and economic developments are responsible for the decline in population numbers. However, this couldn't be further from the truth. Denying developing countries access to fossil fuels and economic growth is among the largest threats to wild animals. Making charcoal and burning biomass are top drivers of trop uh, tropical deforestation and is still the primary source of energy in sub-Saharan Africa. So they claim that uh, for a six-mass uh, extinction event to be happening, 75% of the current species need to be uh, basically endangered. Uh, last, uh, according to Environmental Progress, and this is through the IUCN, the current uh, uh, number of species uh, percentage who are uh, in, you know, in danger, 0 0.001. 75% <laughs> in 0 0.001 could not be further apart. So that is indisputable, unequivocal data that refutes their stuff. They just make this stuff up. And uh, one more, uh, just quick thing. Uh, the the other uh, person who appeared on this was uh, his uh, Ehrlich Stanford colleague. Uh, I think his name is Tony Barnowski. Yep. Tony Barnowski claimed that every single scientist, every single scientist agrees that we are in the midst of a max of mass extinction event. No, we're not. And, <laughs> and, 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 and once again, Scott Pelley just takes that like like it's, you know, like the gospel. Yeah, unchallenged. Right. And, and th that's the kind of stuff that just, you know, make, makes this, uh, you know, fear mongering. Uh, it, um, yeah. We, 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 yeah. Well, you have experts who are just, you know, making these blanket assertions and Scott Pelley is just sitting there nodding his head, taking up his glasses and going, yeah, that's very uh, you know interesting. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that is going to make the, you know, the average person scared out of their mind. So, it yeah. you know, it shows that they have an agenda and it is an anti-humanist agenda and it's sick. And I think that the Jim said is right. It's evil. So, so I've, I've got some thoughts on what these solutions are, but let's go with the official narrative for a little bit here. So just recently, uh, over the majority of December, representatives from countries all over the world met in Montreal for the 2022 United Nations Biodiversity Conference, or it was called COP15, which I know is confusing because there's a different COP thing, whatever, right? 
We're just going to call it the United Nations Biodiversity Conference. The intention of the conference was to address protecting the world's lands and oceans and provide critical financing to save biodiversity in the developing world. The intention is to come to an agreement to protect 30% of the land and water considered important for biodiversity by 2030. Currently, according to this NPR article that I'm reading, only 17% of terrestrial and 10% of marine areas are protected. So a deal was struck. Also included in this deal were provisions aimed at ensuring that we embark on sustainable agriculture practices. Uh, we cut cut global food waste in half and significantly reduce overconsumption and waste generation. Reduce by half both excess nutrients. I don't know what that is. And the overall risk posed by pesticides and highly hazardous chemicals. And ensure that areas under agriculture, aquaculture, fisheries, and forestry are managed sustainably. Um, so Justin, you brought this to my attention, but when I was reading through this stuff, all I could think about was the Netherlands and Sri Lanka yeah. and their, their attempts to reduce nitrogen emissions and all of that, which had the effect of devastating their crop production. So it, when you hear like the climate change, people talking about how climate change is going to lead to like crop, crop reduction. It's like, no, your solutions are, but go ahead and talk about this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's really it, it's it's a, it was a great idea to have both of these stories kind of back to back, because on the one hand, you've got people saying, well, there's you, you've got people like Paul Ehrlich saying there's too many human beings and there's not enough resources and we need five new Earths in order to sustain everybody. Meanwhile, you've got different people saying, you know what we need to do? We need to kick humans off of more of the land and limit their resource use by even more and protect more of our, our fisher, our, our fish and our uh, insects and all this other stuff. And it's like, well, wait a minute. I thought we were, I thought we were all going to die soon because we don't have enough resources and you're taking what resources we have. And you're saying, let's conserve it. If we need five planets and we only have one, why are we conserving 30% of that planet? Doesn't that mean we're all going to die faster? Doesn't it seem like they're exacerbating the problem? It's 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 bizarre that you would have these people in the same group, essentially, saying things that, you know, on the one hand would be making the problem that they're pointing out even worse if we actually follow through on their policies. But um, what's really important for people to understand about this is that conserving land and water is not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself if it's done correctly, okay? But what? But when you're talking about conserving 30% of all land and all water on the earth while the population of the world is growing and you do need more resources ultimately, then yeah, you do run the risk. And on top of that saying, well, also we have to uh, you know, start prioritizing biodiversity, whatever that means, and we have to uh, cut back on our use of uh, nitrous oxide and things like that in agriculture. And we need to limit pesticides and we need to do all this stuff that all of that helps with food production and helps feed more people and all of that. I mean, the, the, the danger here is that you're going to, through bad public policy, create gigantic, gigantic uh, uh, starvation, amounts of starvation potentially. Uh, that you could have um, uh, pe people dying, more disease, uh, the price of property could go up, poverty could increase because those resources are needed for human beings. And ultimately, 
they don't want to use those resources for human beings. They don't even want more human beings. They want fewer human beings, which is Paul Ehrlich's whole point. Um, and, and so these kinds of policies have the potential to be, be totally disastrous. And we've seen that in countries like China and in the Soviet Union, we've seen that and elsewhere throughout the course of human history. When you try to centrally plan agriculture, when you try to centrally, when you put uh, bureaucrats in charge of farming, people who know nothing about farming, now all of a sudden they're deciding how much nitrous oxide people can use. Uh, you end up with Sri Lanka. You end up with the Netherlands. You end up with uh, catastrophes in the Soviet Union and people starving to death by the millions in, in China. We've seen this play out over and over and over again. The central planning stuff does not work. Let people manage their own lives and manage their own resources Everything is going to work out okay in the end if people just have the ability to manage their own lives. The more you try to centrally plan it, the worse things get. Mm -hmm. And that idea at its core, I think, is really the fundamental problem with all of these stories that we're talking about. Whether we're talking about climate change, um, where we're talking about biodiversity, we're talking about uh, limiting people's access to natural resources, overpopulation concerns. All of this fundamentally comes from a place of there is a, there's a philosophy that a lot of people have in the world that they see the amount of resources that exist and they're focused on how do we divide these resources up and how do we manage right. people better and how yeah. do we make sure that people who we think are making the wrong decisions make the right decisions and how can we do that better? And every time we go down that road, things either get a little worse or they get catastrophically worse. And right. you, you see that play out over and over and over again. When you allow people to be free and to make their own decisions, things have a tendency to kind of work out because people make the, ultimately people will make the right choice if you just give them the opportunity to do so. You don't really get, you don't have any examples of free society starving to death. You don't have millions of people in a free society starving. That's never happened ever, never, not one time. How is that possible when you didn't have bureaucrats in charge of the food supply? How were they able to do it? Because that, that, I mean, that is the power fundamentally of the free market. Human beings find a way. They have always found a way for the entire existence of humanity. They right. find a way to deal with finite resources. And if, and if one resource becomes more finite, becomes more scarce, we have more trouble dealing with that. There, human beings find ways to 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 use other resources oh, yeah. Yeah, because, to limit consumption. Because then it gets, it's built in. Yeah, right. Because because it gets more expensive, and that sends yes. price signals for people to develop alternatives and more efficient uses of right. things. That's why the peak oil thing never well, like. Well, by well, that you, can imagine, you can imagine people back in the day when everyone was relying on whale oil. Saying, well, eventually we're going to kill all the whales. Oh, and oh my God. What? I just watched Avatar 2. And then what? You're, I, I, you're know, I know. Me. I know that you love the whales so much. But look, <laughs> if, if eventually we'll kill all the whales, right? And we'll run out of whale oil and we're all going to die. And gonna we're die. all going to die. <laughs> so we have to limit the whaling. But in reality, what people did was they found another source of energy. Right. They didn't need to rely on whale oil. And you know what? If we start running out of actual uh, of oil that you get out of the ground of fossil fuels, We'll find something else. We're developing it now. I'm not worried about it. It's like the water crisis. Have you seen the ocean? There's lots of water there. We're never going to run out of water. We just got to deal with ways to make it so that we can drink it. So that's yeah, part of what. Thing. Exactly. Like Chris, the technology will develop. Chris, I, I do want to talk a lot about uh, uh, 
population control stuff. So, so whatever you're going to say, keep it brief. Oh yeah. Just real quick. I went to the uh, cop 15 website, uh, United Nations sponsored, of course. And, uh, what I saw was in their framework, one of the, the biggest, uh, things that they were so proud about was that they are going to, uh, transfer $300 billion from so-called uh, developed countries to developing countries. So like almost all these uh, conferences, it really is just about uh, wealth transfer from rich to poor nations. Uh, but one other quick thing, I find a, a major contradiction uh, within their, their framework as well. If these are the people that are constantly saying we need to uh, plant uh, or we need to put windmills, you know, in, in the ocean and we need to put uh, uh, solar panels all over the, you know, the, the country, doesn't that have a huge impact on species? Isn't that in and of itself much worse for birds and ants and insects and all of that? And, you know, the, just on and on and on than, you know, a nuclear reactor, which has a very tiny footprint. So right. yeah, their no solutions are actually exacerbating the problem that they're supposed to solve. So, so, so I've discussed population control on this podcast uh, a number of times. And I think all this rhetoric from the 60 Minutes thing and all this rhetoric from the United Nations, the bio, biodiversity that all leads in the direction of population control. It's the same sort of rhetoric that led to the eugenics movements decades ago. It's the same sort of rhetoric that led to the one-child policy in China. It's the same sort of rhetoric that is leading to similar policies being proposed in India right now. And uh, there are people all over the place that are that are saying this stuff. We've referenced a number of them. There's people in the World Economic Forum, people like Bill Gates that are talking about populations getting too big. And yes, sometimes these quotes are taken out of context, but they're still talking about population control. We have a clip of uh, Jane Goodall, who again, like Paul Ehrlich, surprised that she's still alive. But here's Jane Goodall talking at the World Economic Forum, referencing population. Uh, go ahead. Hide away from human population growth because, you know, it underlies so many of the other problems. All these things we talk about wouldn't be a problem if there, were, if there was the size of population that there was 500 years ago. Yeah, the size of the population 500 years ago was less than a billion, uh, just to put that in a little Things bit of context. Things were so much better 500 years ago, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. They were so much uh, better back then. We were living <laughs> just like the Navi. Uh, Jim, I'm going to go to you next, but I just want to run through a couple of these other things. Uh, sure. November of 2019, there was headlines going around. Uh, that were uh, about this letter signed by 11,000 scientists alerting the world to a climate crisis. And the headlines use this to hammer home the consensus myth, but they paid very little attention to a couple of paragraphs in that letter. Paragraphs that had specifically to do with population control. At one point, they said that population growth is, quote, a profoundly troubling sign and how, quote, the world population must be stabilized and ideally gradually reduced. Those headlines didn't talk too much about those facts. And then how about this? Um, uh, um, I, I can't talk about population control uh, without talking about a report that was prepared by Georgetown University and John Hopkins University academics titled Population Engineering and the Fight Against Climate Change. And in this, and if you're a longtime listener, you probably heard me talking about this before, but they outline a spectrum of coercion to how to fight back against population growth. On the far less coercive side is what they call choice enhancement, which is, at, is just, you know, access to abortion. That's all it is if you read between the lines. The second, the, the next uh, more coercive thing is preference adjustments. And they talk about um, uh, propaganda, just, just absolute propaganda in the media, 
radio, TV, billboards, information campaigns, and even school assemblies. They talk about trying to put this message out there that it's better to have less kids, fewer kids. Sorry, Jim. And, uh, <laughs> and, mm -hmm. uh, and that, that we would just have these messages. And then what's funny is that China actually did this. When China was ushering out their, their uh, one-child policy, they had billboards that specifically showed happy families with one kid. And uh, in other in other uh, elements of the media, they had you know upset parents with multiple kids and all. Remember the so singing? We, we Remember the singing videos that we did? That, we won't get that into was that. Incredible, yeah. Uh, the third one is incentivization, which is just taxing or punishing people for having more kids. And then the only one on the spectrum of coercion that they said that they don't endorse was the outright government force. And that's like the, the China's one-child policy. So they already have solutions outlined for how we can move down the field in terms of population control without going as far as China. So this is already being put out there on an academic level, supported by the rhetoric of this 2022 Biodiversity Conference <clears throat> and the 60-minute segment. Jim, go ahead. Yeah, the, the population of the world in the year 1500 was 438 million people. A full quarter of all human beings on the face of the earth were living in China. And so basically Europe, it must, I mean, is basically depopulated. And to achieve this, the only way we're going to be able to sustain the rest of the, you know, the, the ecosystems of the earth is basically to get rid of seven out of every eight people on earth according to Jane Goodall, who, again, nobody at this, you know, what, she's giving it, of course, at the World Economic Forum, where, where you know, doomsday, you know, doomsaying is like the coin of the realm there, right? <laughs> I can't even imagine, we didn't play the clip long enough, but how can somebody be interviewing her and not go, uh, uh, sorry, what was that? What was yeah. that? We, we have to, we have to kill and get rid of seven out of every eight people? In you order say to... 500 years? Did Excuse you mean 50? Me? <laughs> well, let me, let me, let me what, what was that again? Uh, and so, yeah, it's this it's this idea that, uh, as you mentioned, like, you know, there's all these things we can do to make sure, you know, as we start to depopulate the planet, because let's be clear, the World Economic Forum and all of these global uh, leaders and elites really do think there are too many people on Earth. Not them. No, no, there's there's plenty of them they're, they're, They want to be able to live. But there's so many of us other, you know, mouth breathers and uh, and consumers and eaters who just need useless to useless eaters. They call useless them. eaters. That's right. Uh, so, <laughs> you know. This it, it, it's called a conspiracy theory. If you start to point out the logic of their own uh, policies, you're called a conspiracy theorist. I saw a video this morning. I know we're getting close to running out of time, but I just want to tell this quick story. You've heard about that, like the 15 minute city, like people should be living in cities where um, you basically won't won't go anywhere more than a 15 minute walk or a mm. bike ride. And so they're trying, they're experimenting with these sorts of things. And then, and then the video was like, it's a conspiracy theory to think that people uh, won't be able to move outside a 15 uh, minute walk or bike ride from their own domicile. It's like, it's not a conspiracy theory. You guys have said that you want people to live and not be able to move more than a 15 minute walk from where they are forever. What is the, how do you make that happen? You're not going to encourage people not to drive three towns over so they can see grandma. You're going to make them stay in that 15 minute uh, walk or bike ride. How do you do that? Coercion. On, That's the only way this is going to happen. And so when you point these things out, when you point out the logical conclusion to achieve what they say is vitally important to save the earth. And you say, well, this is the only way you're really going to achieve it. They call you a conspiracy theorist and a nut right. job. Right. It's just, it's, it's backwards. Everything's backwards. Chris, consider this your final yeah. words. Here. Yeah. 
Yeah, just one one last thing. Uh, what's what's particularly uh, terrifying to me is that they are uh, propagating this in the schools with all their transgender and all their you know having kids is terrible and you know their anti um, uh, you know having having kids uh, propaganda. Justin, do you want any uh, last words here? We got thirty seconds. Yeah, just just real quick. Um, it's important to keep in mind that Jane Goodall and all these sorts of people—they're not saying that they're going to kill people. They just want to figure out some way to convince, coerce, or propagandize people to just stop having kids to the point that you only have one out of eight, you know, population at some sure. point in the future. Which is how do you do that? Which is Jim's point. How the hell? How do you do that unless yeah, you well. start killing people or something? But I think. You know, it is important to keep that in mind. We're not saying that they're trying to kill anybody. Right, We're just right. Saying... And that's why I brought up, like, you know, you see Bill Bill Gates clips that are taken out of context yeah. and all of this. But, you know, the, when the one-child policy was proposed in China, it was as if it was uh, just this thing of limiting birth. And that led to some of the most terrible outcomes, some just awful, awful things that actually happened. So we won't get into that. Even if you have the best intentions with your policies, it could still lead to absolute nightmarish outcomes. That's going to do it for this episode of the In the Tank podcast. I want to thank everyone for joining us at this end of the week. Join us every week for a new episode. Like I said before, everyone that's listening to the audio version that's probably catching us on a Friday and Saturday, you can join us a day earlier on Thursdays at noon central time where we are streaming on Facebook and YouTube and Rumble and Twitter. And you can join the conversation, throw your comments and questions in there. Maybe we'll show your comments on the screen. Maybe we'll address your questions on the fly. Also, if you'd like, uh, please help us out by hitting that subscribe button or share this content leaving a comment even hitting the like button all of these things help break through those big tech algorithms that prevent content like this from being shown to more people you can follow us on twitter at in the tank pod you can also send us your comments and suggestions to the show by emailing us at in the tank podcast at gmail.com jim lakely where can the fine people find you at jay lakely on twitter at heartland inst on twitter and visit the brand new heartland.org fantastic justin same question uh, at Justin T. Haskins on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Parler, Getter, and uh, all the rest. And of course, you could also follow Stopping Socialism uh, on a bunch of social media platforms at Stop Socialists on Twitter. We're up to, I think, almost 57,000 followers on there now on Twitter. We didn't really have any followers when the year started <laughs> or when last year started. So we've made a lot of progress this year. So follow us on Twitter uh, and go to stoppingsocialism.com. And Chris Talgo, what do you have to pitch today? StoppingSocialism.com. We got some new content up there. And like Jim said, uh, please go visit uh, Harlan.org because the communications team, Jim's team, did a great job and it looks awesome. Absolutely. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. We will talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>